But what I'll tell you, probably more than anything that I that I am grateful for, I'm grateful to the membership of Alcoholics Anonymous. From that olive branch that was extended to me at the pig roast food line, all of those people, through their shared experience, introduced me to a power greater than myself, which I choose to call God, that it gave me a life that has value, purpose, and meaning. From lost, lonely, and broken to value, purpose, and meaning. How do we get there? The 12 steps, well worked. The leadership of a sponsor, the engagement in a home group, and an embrace of our fellowship, I believe will lead any sufferer into the hands of God. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, my lords. Hello, my ladies. That was the voice of Mr. Doug M. that you heard once again at the beginning of this episode. But first things first, this episode right here, right now is brought to you by, sponsored by Tiffany and Gerhard, do you know what Tiffany and Gerhard did? Well, they went to our website, soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Tiffany and Gerhard, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to you as usual. We are going to let the other folks listen on in along with us because we are a most generous people. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table and let's get started. I have an apology. And the apology is this, is that last week, nor the week before, did I mention Founders Day. Most of you are going to know out there, but some of you will not. Founders Day in Alcoholics Anonymous is June 10th. And I have a couple of quotes to read here from Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob said he, referring to Bill Wilson, came and got me home and to bed, gave me a few drinks that night, and one bottle of beer the next morning. 
That was June 10th, 1935, and that was my last drink. So, Weans, all of us in Alcoholics Anonymous, refers to June 10th as Founders Day for us. And, and just so you know, a little history, when Dr. Bob had that bottle of beer the next morning, which Bill W. gave him to settle his nerves, the reason he had to settle his nerve, my, nerves, my understanding, is that Mr. Bob, Dr. Bob, was going in uh, to do some surgery And Dr. Bob's profession was a proctologist. Now, I don't know who received (laughs) that surgery from Dr. Bob after he studied his nerves, but I am just hoping that it came out okay. What a weird history we have. Anyway, here's some more writings from Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob said, the question which might naturally come into your mind would be, what did the man, and he's talking about Bill Wilson, do or say that was different from what others had done or said? It must be remembered that I had read a great deal and talked to everyone who knew or thought they knew anything about the subject of alcoholism. But this was a man, Bill Wilson, who had experienced many years of frightful drinking, who had most all the drunkard's experiences known to man, but who had been cured by the very means I had been trying to employ, that is to say, the spiritual approach. He gave me information about the subject of alcoholism, which was undoubtedly helpful. Of far more importance was the fact that he, Bill Wilson, was the first living living human with whom I had ever talked who knew what he was talking about in regards to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, Dr. Bob said, he talked my language. And that's from Dr. Bob's, uh, uh, in the big book, uh, Doctor, uh, The Doctor's Nightmare. And um, so, let me just say this. I know I'm a little bit late here, but happy birthday to our beloved fellowship, 85 years ago on June 10th. Oh, how thankful I am to have been born in this window of opportunity um, to recover from this thing called alcoholism or to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and to be in recovery. Doug M., Part two, as I mentioned at the beginning, that was his voice that you heard. This is a continuation over Doug M. Part one, which you heard last week. So if you didn't get a chance to catch part one, I would definitely go back and listen to it. But in this part, uh, part two, uh, Doug will tell you about coming in at 22 years old to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, a, a part of what brought him in was the delusions that he was having, including the DEA. And for those of you who are outside of the uh, 
United States. That is the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration, I believe is what that is. Anyway, he thought that the DEA was on his trail, and that was part of what he experienced during a a, a psychotic disorder, which sent him to the mental hospital. And you'll have to hear him tell that story about even uh, coming out of it. Very interesting. Uh, We also hear about his encounter with Mr. Daryl M. at the treatment center and how that encounter altered the trajectory of Doug's life. We talk about singleness of purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about how to select a sponsor. And we talk about, oh, so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Doug M. And we will have plenty, oh, listener feedback at the uh, end of this episode. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here. Once again, with Mr. Doug M. on part due. Uh, in other words, we did not quite get all the way through Doug's episode last time. In fact, he hadn't even gotten sober yet. So we needed to schedule a little bit more time to take you through the, the good part, if you will. Uh, the part that gives us all hope. And so uh, last time with Doug... We covered uh, the traditions in uh, marriage, practicing the principles in business. We talked about our common friend, Mr. Jimmy D. Uh, We talked about the feeling of separation and disconnection uh, before coming to AA. We talked about Doug's white light experience slash uh, near-death experience. And then we had just gotten to the point where Doug was in his brother's home, uh, his brother had been sober six plus years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we talked about him kind of sort of taking the first step, but not really. And then we wanted to pick it up from there. So first things first, Doug, why don't you go ahead for the audience again, go ahead and introduce yourself, give you sobriety date if you wish, and tell them what area of the country you live in. Will do. Thanks a bunch, John. Doug M., alcoholic, uh, with a sobriety date of August 15th of 1994, and I am in Canton, Georgia, just north of Atlanta. Georgia. Georgia. All right, so why don't you pick us up from that particular point there where you were in your brother's house and just take it away. Sure, will do, will do. So as I kind of closed out uh, during our last conversation, I was in a situation where uh, I was kind of trying to relieve the paranoid delusional feelings that I had. I was in a psychotic episode and, you know, my brother knew that something was wrong, but he couldn't do anything for me. And he was turning the screws of pressure that I needed to leave and go back to Nashville. And because of my delusion, I felt like if I left and didn't turn myself in to become an undercover agent, because that was part of my delusion, I'll talk a little bit more about that. And if I didn't do that, I was going to go to jail. And so the pressure kept building and building and building as I postponed and evaded. And ultimately, I broke down as a last-ditch effort to relieve the paranoid feeling and said, Rob, I'm an alcoholic, and I don't know what to do about it. And he said, you just took the first step. And you know, I didn't really take the first step because I didn't necessarily do what is described in the book on page 30 that says we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. But I can tell you what I did was those words set up a series of events that led me to Alcoholics Anonymous. So 
the next, uh, the, the, the overnight uh, experience was one of, of long conversation with my father because my parents came and picked me up at, at my brother's house as a result of this admission and uh, decided I'd stay over. I called my aunt and uncle down in Nashville and said I wouldn't be returning as a result of this admission. We needed to do something. We'll postpone. Didn't know whether I would go back or not, but just not right now. And there were um, uh, understanding of that. And so, you know, I said a lot of things and shared a lot of things with my dad that night and so on and didn't get a lot of sleep. And the next day was, was really kind of hell. And, uh, and what I mean is I didn't know what I was going to do because now I can't I can't run away and I don't really want to because I don't want to go to jail, but I still don't want to turn myself in. And my delusion says I got to go be a narc, which doesn't work for my lifestyle. The other alternative is kill myself. And, uh, you know, I've learned over my time in sobriety that when people are contemplating suicide, if they have a plan, it's really, really serious. If they're saying it, it's really a cry for help. Mm. I wouldn't say in it, but I was planning it and uh, I was in dire straits and Thankfully, the the party that would acknowledge and see me right then because I needed to go right when I needed to go, that delusion was driving me, was a place called Mercy Center Hospital in North Aurora, Illinois. It was on Lake Street, North Aurora, Illinois 31. They said, we'll see him right now. And I got my parents' car with them and we drove to the hospital. So I've kind of given a little bit of a glimpse in the end of the last conversation and the beginning of this one uh, related to my mental state right? And the psychotic state that I was in and the delusion I was suffering from. And ultimately, when I did my intake interview, uh, I weighed 150 pounds and my blood pressure was 220 over 170. So that gives you a picture of what went into that hospital uh, that was being introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous through that facility was a a kid that was was lost, uh, that was bankrupt and just about every way you could be um, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, etc. I was broken. And uh, so I was in that hospital and the first day they put me in treatment and they realized that I didn't belong there. So they sent me over to the locked psych ward and, and basically I signed myself in um, and then I signed myself out and then I signed myself back in. And as a result of doing that, uh, I was no longer of free will in that facility. Uh-huh. So they had me behind a locked door and I couldn't get out. And uh, for 15 days, I was in that psychotic state in that facility and uh, doing occupational therapy and seeing psychiatrists and psychologists and social sociologists and counselors and so on. And they're all telling me the truth that there's something wrong with me. And I'm telling them, I know why I'm there, you know, and I just wish they would tell me I'm committed. I'm in, I'm all the way in again. I'm going to be an undercover agent. You know, I read, I read the 12 and 12 in those 15 days. And there's places in that book that Bill talks about the acid test. And I knew what that meant and I could pass it for sure. <laughs> so you were still going through the delusional yes. state that entire time you were Absolutely. in the hospital. Absolutely. I was, I was in a psychotic state for, Roughly, uh, roughly 23 days. And um, interestingly, uh, John, is that as that day, as the days elongated and progressed while I was in the psych ward and still psychotic, uh, behind the scenes, unbeknownst to me, and I wouldn't come to find this out until about six months after I got out of the hospital, um, there were arrangements and administrative activities happening. My psychosis broke um, 15, 16 days into that facility. Uh, it happened to break on a Wednesday, I believe, Wednesday or Thursday. So, what does that look like when a psychosis breaks? What do you What do you mean by that? 
I just rejoined reality. The delusion left me and I rejoined reality. It's as though it's kind of like, it's kind of like having a dream, right? You're in the middle of a dream and then you wake up from it and you know, you're awake, but the dream was very real. It's almost like that to a degree, but it's what a psychosis is, is an altered state of reality. The synapses in your brain are not connecting in reality. They're connecting in an altered state of reality. That's what a psychotic episode is. And so when those synapses rejoin the normal neurons and firing and so on, it's more scientific than even I'm, I'm, I'm knowledgeable of. I just know this from what was explained to me that you kind of, the delusion, that feeling of I'm going to be an undercover agent, you know, and I think my alcoholism fed that delusion because I thought, you know, well, hell, I'm going to be able to continue to drink and do the things I want to do. I'm going to get paid for it. I'll have no risk of getting caught and going to jail, which I'm deadly afraid of. I'll get paid for it and, you know, get lots of kudos and accolades. And I think my alcoholic ego fed that delusion and the way it manifested for me. But I'll tell you the details. I was sitting in a, I was sitting in a room with a counselor, a gentleman by the name of Jerry. And, and I said to Jerry, we talked every day. I said, when are you guys going to tell me the truth about why I'm here? I know why I'm here. You know why I'm here. When are you going to accept that I'm committed to be here and just accept it and tell me the truth? He says, here's the deal, Doug. Every professional in this facility that you engage with, we're all sitting in this room together. And on the ce- in the center of the room, there's a table. And on that table, there is a dog. And every one of the professionals in the facility go around the room and tell you, that's a dog, that's a dog, that's a dog. Because the reality is, it's a dog. And then they, And then we ask you, what is that? And you say, it's a cat. That's what's going on here. There's no alternate agenda. And for some reason, maybe the summary and the the aggregation of all of the conversations, counseling and impacts and so on, the psychosis went away. The psychotic state left me. Wow. And I saw the dog, if you will. Proverbial, I saw the dog. And so I said, you know what? Okay. And I don't know. know, It's as real as I'm sitting here talking to you today. I can remember it. It was a part of my life. It was a 23 or so day period that is part of my my hat, my past, my history, my life. And the state that I was in was as real as I'm sitting here talking to you today. But it was an altered state of reality because of the psycho- the psychosis. So the psychosis broke and and ultimately, you know, uh, I was to join treatment on the following Monday, you know, go through some you know, discharge stuff with the inpatient and so on and so forth. And then I would start the addictions treatment program on Monday. And that Sunday I had to go back out to DeKalb, Illinois at Northern and meet a old buddy of mine to collect some money. And, uh, and, and we engaged in some activities that re- resulted in me failing the urinalysis when I <laughs> joined treatment on Monday. And, you know, my mind was, it's just one last time. It's just one right. last time. And uh, so I lied about it. And in that lying about it, you know, uh, the pressure started to mount. And uh, the second day of treatment, um, a man named Daryl M., a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, sober about eight years plus, came to the treatment center on Tuesday night. And he, he talked about what he was thinking, feeling, and doing when he was in that treatment center. And um, he, he'd been reading my mail. Right, he'd been, he'd been, he's, he's all in my kitchen, and I didn't understand how he could be there because I'd never met that man before. And what happened for me is what I believe is a critical process for every person to get and stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. What happened for me was the process of identification. I related to what he was saying, 
and he gave me just a little bit of hope. Because if I don't identify, then I don't have the same problem. And if I don't have the same problem, then I'm not going to be able to accept the solution that you offer me. So that process of identification and that singleness of purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous has been so important to me. We've talked a little bit from an inference perspective. I did things more than just drink. But I keep my story and my experience focused on my alcoholism because that singleness of purpose is so important. And it's so critical that we keep that in play for our potential members so that we do not exclude someone. All of the other stuff can be dealt with and can be talked about outside the confines of our meetings, which was done for me. But within the meetings, we need to respect our traditions and that single purpose that allows us to bind together around one common problem and one common solution, as the book describes, that allows us to join in brotherly and harmonious action. So I identified, and what happened is that lit a fire for me. The next night, I was lying about or thinking about the story that I could still tell to get away with that one last time, and I went to treatment that morning after having a kind of epiphany. Uh, that epiphany, that moment of clarity of many, many people talk about. As I was trying to think of the story to get away with it, the truth of my life was presented to me right in front of my face and I couldn't deny it. And I saw the truth of my life and it was just, it was, it was a story. It was a con. It was a farce. It was ridiculous. Right. And I didn't like what I saw. And I physically sat up in the bed at about 445 in the morning and I, and I say, God, please help me. I don't want to live like this anymore. And uh, I didn't realize he'd already helped me by introducing me to that treatment center, which was going to connect me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Two separate entities, but working together. And uh, I went to treatment that morning, and I told Marge, my counselor, the truth. And uh, she jumped up from her desk, ran around, and gave me a hug and said, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so happy you told me that. Uh They knew all all along. And uh, they needed me to tell the truth. And it was an experience that I cannot relay the measure of importance because I felt what it felt like to be honest for the first time in a tremendously long period of time. And it was like the weight of the world was lifted off of my shoulders. You know, Bill talks about the, I think kind of the, 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 the great breath of wind that blew through him when he was in the hospital kind of a thing. It was almost like that, just like, wow. And it felt, it felt amazing. And that further that fire uh, that I got through the identification. So I started doing treatment. I started, I'm going to be the best treatment guy ever. (laughs) And uh, I I go to my first AA meeting on that Friday night at the Fox Valley Fellowship Center, uh, 219 East Galena Avenue in downtown Aurora, Illinois. And it was an old union hall that had been converted. A a nonprofit organization was established. They bought the building. They set up the fellowship center and allowed meetings to be held there and groups to hold their meetings there and so on. And I walked into uh, the Friday night will try group and uh, there was a split level. And I walked down six stairs into this big open room. And I can remember it like yesterday. I can still see that room. You know, there's a, a, a rack of literature and pamphlets over here. And then there's a literature cabinet right there. And there's tables down this long hallway. And there's chairs all the way around it, probably 80 or 100 chairs around this long hallway of chairs and tables. And at the head of the table, there's a man there. His name's Daryl. It's that guy that I saw on Tuesday night. And I thought, well, they're telling me to get this sponsor thing. I don't know what that is. So I'll go ask him. I walked down to the table. I said, hi, uh, I'm Doug. I met you Tuesday night. He says, how you doing, Doug? I'm Daryl. I said, I, I said, okay. Uh, they're telling me I need to get a sponsor. Would uh, you be willing to be my sponsor? 
and he said, well, let's talk after the meeting. I said, okay. And uh, I'm sitting here in Alcoholics Anonymous at 22 years old. Alcoholics Anonymous at 22 years old. My life's over. This is awful. And I cried like uh, I hadn't cried in a long time throughout the entirety of that meeting because I was just in a word, lost. Completely lost. And uh, after the meeting, Daryl and I talked. And what happened in that conversation was Daryl set the terms of sponsorship. He established the accountability of sponsorship by telling me what he expected of me and what I would do if he were to be my sponsor. When I would go to meetings, how frequently I would go to meetings, how I would act when I was at meetings, when I was allowed to talk or not talk, how I would dress, how I would act, all of these things. And you know, I'm 22 years old, and he was pretty direct. You know, He was kind of one of those you know, hardline, big book thumping, smack you in the forehead kind of a sponsor, and that's what I needed. Mm-hmm. And he laid it all out. And at the end of the conversation, he said, I'm going to ask you one more thing. I said, okay. He says, are you willing to go to any length for victory over alcohol. Now, uh, for lack of a better answer, I said yes. You know, I knew that's what he wanted me to say, so I said yes. Right. I, I need to have the sponsor thing. <laughs> and he says, "Okay, well, we'll we'll do this." All right. He said, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's uh, Saturday. I'm off treatment for the weekend, so I'm probably gonna sleep in, and you know, I'll probably get up and you know, lay on the couch and watch a little TV, maybe do a little laundry, you know, kind of just chill out." And he says, "I don't think so." <laughs> and I kind of looked at him and he said, uh, what you're going to do is set your alarm for 530. You're going to get up Whoa. in the morning and you're going to go down to Cool Acres Park. It was a Riverside Park uh, in North Aurora. He says, you're going to ask Rick uh, what you can do and you're going to help us out with our fellowships, our, uh, the, the, the fellowship center's annual pig roast picnic. Now, I can tell you, John, I didn't know you could change sponsors. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, And I didn't know you could say no. And uh, I didn't know then, but I know now I was gifted with enough desperation, that feeling of utter and complete loss that I just, that I just described, I believe is what was, you know, bore fruit in desperation. So I did what he asked me to do. And I did that the next day. And so really that was an amazing experience because I went down there and I did what they asked me to do. But the experience that I had was a gift and it was the gift of service before I knew what service was. Because that day, as I went and did the work, what I ended up doing was boiling corn and melting butter. And I stood in a food serving line at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I took that corn that I boiled and I dipped it in a vat of butter and then I put it on people's plates as they came through the food serving line. And um, they remembered my name from the night before. Mm -hmm. And uh, they looked me in the eye and they said, "Uh, we're glad you're here. And I believed them. And they asked me to keep coming back, and I wanted to. And the reason I say it was a gift of service, it was through that work and engagement of serving other people that that barrier of self-centered isolation that we get captive to was lowered just enough that I could accept the gift of God's grace that the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous extended to me. And they extended it to me in that food line by remembering my name and asking me to come be with them again. And I don't know if I hadn't been serving food that I would have gotten that same experience. Because if I were sitting in the back corner isolating and hating everybody and wishing I wasn't there and feeling self-pity, I don't know that the gift of God's grace could have reached me. It would have still been available, but I don't know that it could have reached me. 
So I think it's so critical that we take our new members and we don't just hand them a book and say, read this and call me tomorrow. We hand them a paintbrush or a broom or a scrub brush. We stack chairs and we work shoulder to shoulder with those new people and we help them to break down that isolation and we just connect because that's what we're missing so much in alcoholism is any real connection with other people. So that's what happened. And it was an amazing experience for me. Let me just go ahead and do a little break here. We will be continuing our conversation with Doug M. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website if you wish to use it. If and only if the spirit moves you to do such, please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the Listeners, Silver, Silver Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Doug M. Doug, I could tell when you were describing that serving line there, the food line, uh, you got, I guess, a little bit emotional thinking yeah. about that. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about what was going through your head at that time. Um, I can get emotional thinking about it at any point in time, but particularly in kind of reliving that experience because I have such a tremendous volume of gratitude. And really that's the emotion. It's not dis it's not it's not unhappy at all. It's gratitude. It's gratitude for the life that I've been given. And I see that as a point of connection to today. And it is something, service to others, that our literature tells us is necessary. You know, how do we grow spiritually? Through work and self-sacrifice for others. It will help us to overcome the certain trials and low spots that lie ahead. That's what our literature says. And I can tell you in my years of experience, that is absolutely true. What an invaluable experience and lesson to learn, basically, the day after my first AA meeting. You know, I was a guy that got a sponsor when I first walked into AA. And um, I'm a guy that has only picked up one desire chip in my time. Now, there's lots of people that relapse and come back. And I hear it talked about in meetings often. But I can tell you that relapse is not required to get and stay sober. And for those that do and come back, I'm so glad that they make it back. And they have experience that they can share with others that then relapse and so on. But if you're new or, or nearly new and you think, well, I, maybe I need to do some more drinking, the reality is you don't. You don't have to. And I'm experienced, my experience has taught me that. But uh, I get emotional because of the connectivity to those people and the gift of life that they gave me through their example, their own personal example. Because that's what we do here. You know, we don't, we don't teach. We don't preach. We don't tell. We do with each other. And it's in that doing with each other that life is reborn. And for me, it wasn't reborn. It was just born. I didn't have really a life before I got here. At 22 years old, I had nothing but what mama and daddy had given me. I had created a life. Um, but in the early days of sobriety, that almost led me out the door because I spent time in, in my early days and meetings thinking about these old, you know, 22 years old and I'm running around with people that, you know, what I see are, you know, one foot on a banana peel and one foot in the grave, right? A bunch of old people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Going to do the polka. Exactly. I mean, they're in their late 40s. 
hello, that's me today. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm 22 running around with them, but I'm, I'm looking at these folks and I'm thinking, well, I hear people talk about I lost marriages. I lost careers. I lost homes. I lost cars. And I'm thinking, well, I hadn't lost any of that. And my sponsor being the good sponsor that he was says, Hey, you big dummy. Maybe you just you're you're just such a loser you couldn't accumulate any of that before you crashed. <laughs> and that was how loving and kind that right. first sponsor was. You know, I remember when the first time I volunteered to chair the meeting, uh, we used to count off and break into groups, and everybody saying, "Get it, be a service, be a service." I was about ninety days sober, and they're like, "Be a service, be a service." And at that group, at that time, they said, "Okay, who wants to chair for the chair this meeting the next month?" I raised my hand. Everybody clapped, and I felt real good about myself. And we counted off and split up into groups, and in that little break between i come out of the bathroom and daryl's standing there and he's looking at me he goes what in the blankety blank are you doing thinking you're going to chair a meeting i said well i'm being of service like everybody says he said, look you big dummy you don't know how to chair a meeting so you're not allowed to do that i'm like what he goes i'm going to chair the meeting and you're going to be a greeter and then when you get done greeting everybody you're going to come sit next to me and i'm going to teach you how to chair a meeting of alcoholics anonymous and early on he started teaching me that when you take a leadership position, whether it's in chair in a meeting or in sponsorship or in service, that you have to be responsible. And I think all of us have that responsibility. So I was taught these things through personal examples from the very beginning. Daryl and I went through the steps and my life got really good, you know, really fast and things were going well. I'm living in my parents' house. I'm making amends to them and doing the things that I need to be and learning how to be self-supporting and you know, things are rocking along. And about two years sober, I'm dating a gal down in Dallas, long distance. And I said, I'm going to move down there and see where it goes. How did you meet her? Uh, through work. We actually worked for the same company. And she was a corporate contact for the role that I had and the job that I had in uh, um, in outside of Chicago. Uh, I had some inventory responsibilities. And she was a coordinator at the corporate office in Dallas. And interestingly, I took a Friday off and went to the first conference I ever went to, the Northern Illinois Area Assembly. And when I got back the following Monday and we were doing orders and stuff, we just chatted a little, why were you off? And I kind of ah, just went to a, you know, a little weekend, da, 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 da. And ultimately, through my sharing of that, she said, was it an AA conference? And I'm just like, what? You know, well, come to find out she was an Al-Anon. She had awareness of Alcoholics uh, Anonymous. So that kind of bore more personal conversation. And we had an interest in each other and decided we wanted to meet. We did and so on. And we did the long distance thing for a little while. And then I moved down to Dallas. And, um, you know, when I got to Dallas, what happened is I went from being NAA in the Chicago area, right, to being around AA uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Oh, I see trouble and, uh, coming. Yeah. And I went from being sponsored to having an idiot for a sponsor and that idiot as a sponsor was me right <laughs> <laughs> Alcohol, alcoholism i think it's one of the acronyms of ism i sponsor myself and if i'm sponsoring <laughs> myself i've never heard that one i'm probably going to be practicing a little alcoholism because right. i don't have to drink to behave alcoholically and what i started doing was getting resentful dishonest manipulative and afraid untethered and unaccountable without committed meetings, without, you know, good fellowship, without accountability through sponsorship. And, you know, uh, that relationship went by the wayside. Uh, I, I almost lost the job I had and uh, quite frankly was headed towards picking up a drink. And that was just in 10 months. You know, I mean, I was thankful that I never picked up a drink, but I was headed in that direction. But I got willing to be willing again. And I started showing up early and staying late like I was raised to do, like I was shown to do. And I ran into a guy uh, named Stuart R. Uh, uh, 
at a meeting and uh, we started running around together. And uh, within a couple of weeks, I realized that uh, he was attractive in the way he worked the AA program. And uh, we were, we were walking out uh, to the parking lot to get his big book, the 1997 fall convention and assembly in Northeast Texas area. So he could read how it works prior to David Aronofsky, David A. Pardon yeah. He's fast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, David from telling his story that Saturday night. And I said, Hey, Stuart, I've been thinking about asking you to sponsor me. And I remember he just kind of stopped at his tracks. He'd been really nice up to this point. He turned around and looked down at me. He's like six foot five. And he said, thinking about it, huh? He said, is there a question you'd like to ask me? And I was like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. What happened to that nice guy I've been running around with? I said, yeah, I'd like you to sponsor me if you would, please. And he said, you know, it'd be an honor and a privilege. He said, but we need to talk a little bit. We stood there in the parking lot and he set the terms. And it was like I was home again. Um, I had that accountability I needed. And, uh, you know, from that day to this, he has been my sponsor and has walked me through uh, everything I've gone through. Right. Uh, so, Doug, one of the questions I get quite a bit on uh, people writing in or uh, DMing me on uh, Instagram, and uh, uh, I've just heard it many times, is, you know, how do you pick a sponsor? Right. And, and I know that there's no black and white answer to that, but can you give a little bit of your insight on that? Sure. Well, I mean, my, my, my first experience was it was the only person I knew, right? It was the guy that came to the treatment center, and it just so happened to work out. However, it's not a marriage. I think you just have to pick somebody. You know, that first sponsor walked me through the first nine proposals effectively. But then when it came to living in 10, 11, and 12, he didn't necessarily give me what he needed. Now, that's something that was going on with him. And ultimately, I got to a place where I outgrew my first sponsor and I needed something different. And thankfully, I had an engaged fellowship that knew him and knew me and gave me great counsel because I struggled. I felt like Daryl had saved my life, but I wasn't getting what I needed. And I talked to these other old timers that knew him and they said, plain and simple, Doug, you got to do what you need to do for your recovery. It's your responsibility. This isn't about feelings. Um, and so I had become attracted to another gentleman just by sitting in meetings and listening to what he had to share. And so I made a switch. Um, when it came to Stuart, it was a matter of being attracted to what he had, but I had a little bit of time. I wasn't in danger of picking up a drink. I'm not a big fan of the, the term temporary sponsorship. I think we just get a sponsor and we do what that sponsor asks us to do. And the criteria that I tell people to look for is, do you, do you, can you can you at all relate to what they're saying, right? Does it does it give you some level of hope or inspiration? Does it sound appealing? Does their example and how they are carrying themselves look attractive? Do they themselves have a sponsor? Critical criteria, and are they working with that sponsor? And that's about it. Right? Thank you. I don't I don't think you know you need to relate or have common or like them or dislike them. I think. It's a spiritual relationship. And so if God is actually in the center and I'm willing to surrender to sponsorship, um, you know, Tom, I, uh, who I've had the great pleasure of spending a lot of time with, fortunately, because uh, he sponsors my grand sponsor and, and has been in that sponsorship line or family for, for years and years and years. He talks about sponsorship as the willingness to submit to the authority of another human being with the understanding that that other human being is guided by a spiritual nature. I think that's the best description. 
Mm, I like that. I think it's a fantastic description because it's a spiritual relationship. There's not hiring and firing and sponsorship. You can't hire and fire in a spiritual relationship. You engage. And it's in that engagement that it will either evolve and last or it will evolve and you'll move in another direction. But worst case scenario, you have that tethered accountability in the near term with someone. Right. And when I encounter new people and they ask that question, I'll, I'll, I'll say much what I just said. And I'll say, I'll tell you what, you know, uh, you don't have to have a, a sponsor right today. Right. You might want to go to a few meetings and see where you fit in. You might want to find a meeting and, and go to a few and maybe you see somebody at multiple meetings and you know you want that or whatever. But I'll tell you what, until you find that person, here's my number. Give me yours. So why don't we talk on a daily basis and establish some connectivity and accountability until you find that relationship? Because you don't have to go through any of this stuff alone. It's hard when we're new. And so I extend that hand of fellowship, not with the idea of I'm going to sponsor everybody by any stretch, right? I think everybody can find somebody that will work for them. The other thing I've learned is in sponsorship, it's not cookie cutter as the sponsor. I work with guys, same message, same constructs, same basis, but I interact with them individually because their personalities are different. And mm-hmm. that's something that's happened over time for me as well. So, you know, I, I don't know if I answered your question, you your question directly, but, you know, that's where my experience is with sponsorship. And I think it's, it's the most valuable tool I've ever been given. It's, okay, so it, I got so you off critical. track. You were talking to your sponsor in the parking lot. He had kind of set some parameters for you and you kind of felt in the groove again. And then once you go on from there. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, uh, we set the terms and it was like, okay, good. And I had the accountability and, you know, uh, established a committed meeting schedule and a responsibility. And then we started doing step work because he wanted to know me. It didn't matter that I was three years sober. He said, we're going to start at the beginning. And so we did. We went through the steps together in that process, and we did it pretty quickly because I did have experience, and, and I had done the work thoroughly the first time through. And so there was kind of some review stuff, some getting to know stuff, and we established that rapport. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I went to the Lakeside Conference in Brownwood, Texas the first time that in fall, uh, that fall of 1997. You know, at the end of the conversation, he said, all right, Monday night at the meeting uh, at the Compass Group, uh, bring me $90. And I said, okay. And we just started walking back up and he looked at me and says, you're not going to ask me what for? I said, why? Well, <laughs> we're going to go something, go somewhere or do something. Uh, uh, I didn't question him. And that's the thing for me that I will say is uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that when it comes to sponsorship, I've not questioned. I don't, I don't debate with my sponsor. What was the 90 bucks all about? Going to the Lakeside Conference. It was the oh, registration okay, gotcha, fee. Gotcha, okay. It was the registration fee. I just didn't argue with them. I didn't ask. I, you know, hey, I said I was willing to go to any length. So I'm going to do what the man asked me to do, period. And I'm not going to question it. And, and and we're now, whatever, 23 years removed from that uh, weekend. I don't question them still today. And we've become the best of friends um, and have a, a pretty unique relationship in that way because our friendship has glow, grown and blossomed through a lot of common uh, interests and likes, but the sponsor-sponsee relationship has never been, you know, broken. Is he still here in the Dallas area? He is. He is. Can I ask what group he goes to? Do you know? Uh, he goes to Simply AA in Irving, Texas. 
I've been to a lot of them. I don't think I've been to that one. Monday night and Thursday night. And uh, he and and a sponsor brother and myself uh, were founders of that group um, 15 years ago now. But needless to say, uh, we started rocking along doing the deal, and I took on a commitment. Uh, I talked about it when we talked about Jimmy as the corrections chair because I had been doing jail work up in Chicago uh, before I moved, and so I got into that and district committee. And then um, uh, Larry Johnson asked me to be uh, part of uh, the the coffee committee for the Northeast Texas area because uh, coffee and hotels is expensive, so. Uh, we imposed a, a, a process where you had to pour the coffee cup, the cup of coffee for a dollar. It wasn't just <laughs> free and open for hundreds of gallons of coffee to get drank over the weekend. And, and I did that. And that's when Tracy and I met. She was actually the GSR of the Mid Cities group at the time. And okay, so we talked about Tracy on the previous episode. Tracy yeah. is your bride. That is correct. That okay, is so correct. this is when you met Tracy. Correct. Correct. So Tracy's my bride has been since April 10th of 1999, but we met uh, in the, um, I think it was the spring uh, assembly of 1998. And, um, you know, she ended up, we got into conversation. She ended up helping out in the coffee stuff. And there's funny little stories about that, which you don't have necessarily time for right now, but we started flirting and so on. And then the next weekend there was the Irving spring conference. And I happened to be on that committee as well. And, in the week between, um, um, she had tried to find me and couldn't because she didn't know how to spell my last name. And I think that was God doing for her what she couldn't do for herself. <laughs> um, and and then the Saturday night at the Irving Spring Conference, uh, I asked her to dance. And I said, hey, I've enjoyed you know visiting with you and getting to know you a little bit. I'd like you to take you out to coffee and get to know you better. And she said, I like that. And um, Boy said, meets girl on AA campus at an yep. AA dance. And they That's start right. to get together. That's, That's great. right. That's right. And, uh, you know, it really started the weekend before, um, Stuart's wife was the manager on duty at the hotel that was hosting the assembly. And one of our home group members, um, was having a birthday. So they had the party up in the manager on duty suite, big presidential suite or whatever. And Tracy and I were both there. We ended up sitting on the couch and talking for like three hours. And that's really where it was born. We were just talking, right? Just chit chatting and talking about stuff. And there was a mutual interest there. And I remember walking her down to her car and gave her a good, just an AA hug and said goodnight. And Went back up, and that was different for her. It wasn't like I was going to try and you know accost her or whatever. I was being very respectful. It's the way I was raised, and and believe it's important. And um, the next weekend, when I asked her to dance, uh, I said I'd like to take her out. She said uh, I'd like that, but I have to talk to my sponsor, and that's her story, not mine. But uh, she has some history in regards to uh, her dating or willingness <laughs> to surrender that area of her life, um, indicated by me being her third husband. Right. But, uh, <laughs> Um, and interestingly, just because of the way we interact at times, I entered, I introduce her as my first wife, just to keep her honest from time to time. And, and, uh, and then she, she, she responds to that with yes. And he is my last husband. <laughs> so we have fun with it, but nonetheless, uh, she asked her sponsor and her sponsor gave her some directions, um, on dating and, and that directions with no sex for six months. I said, Whoa, that's a lot. So. <laughs> There was no holding hands, no touching, no feeling, no kissing, no nothing for six months. No holding months. hands? Nothing. Even. No physical contact. AA hug before or after meetings, and neither of us were allowed to change home groups. Um, so um, we started doing that. We just talked because that's all we could do. And I can tell you this, John. We learned about each other 
And uh, I can tell you it's valuable, valuable, and it's valuable experience because we learned material things. We learned about values, beliefs, principles, everything you need to know. And, you know, I've not learned anything of material significance about her and who she is and how she operates from that time until this, right? Sure, I've learned new stuff, but nothing of material significance. And I can tell you, we're, we're, we're married today as a result of that, because uh, a couple of years into our marriage, um, I had a resentment at God as a result of an unfulfilled expectation to have a child of my own, and that resentment invaded my marriage, and I started emotionally withdrawing. And uh, ultimately, uh, my wife and I separated just a couple of months after our daughter was born from the basis of this resentment. And uh, and uh, we were separated for six months. And and Tracy often said, you know, uh, in in, rec- in retrospect during that time, she said, I just didn't feel like you were acting like the man I had gotten to know. And the reality is I wasn't. And the reason I wasn't is I wasn't seeking God in the same way because I was resentful at him. You know, and it's amazing what will happen when we have unfulfilled expectations. We'll get resentful. And it doesn't matter who those expectations are from, right? I can expect something of God. Well, if I haven't communicated to him and him given the agreement, I don't know how God would give you the high sign agreement other than delivering it, but uh, an unmet expectation is resentment. And, you know, we fall prey to that so often. And I fell prey to it big time in regards to this, my, my higher power. And uh, it almost cost me my marriage. But because of the experience we had getting to know each other in that first six months, Tracy didn't think I was acting as the man that she got to know. And the fact is I wasn't, but through a lot of work in that six month separation, I discovered the resentment at God. I I discarded it and I really learned what it meant to surrender in step six and seven. Mm -hmm. And that's really the glue that holds this thing together. And I didn't think there was that much to it. Right. But, uh, the longer I'm sober and that was right at 10, 11 years, uh, the longer I'm sober, the more reliant I am on six and seven, because I still have defects of character. I still have flaws in my makeup, and I absolutely must have God's help to remove them. I can't do it on my own. And so, you know, uh, my life grew fast. Um, you know, going to conferences and getting engaged in Alcoholics Anonymous beyond a home group was the leadership I got from Stuart. And I can tell you, my fellowship has grown worldwide as a result. You know, when I say worldwide, it's it's really related to a, a story I tell of experience at the, starting at the 2010 International Convention in San Antonio. My wife and I, Tracy and I, are standing outside the big meeting hall smoking a cigarette outside the convention center. A little Indian guy comes walking up to us. His name is Lawrence. He goes by Lalu, and we have a conversation, and uh, we exchange information. At the end of that conversation, that was 15, 20 minutes maybe, and, you know, just worldwide fellowship, international convention, you know, 50,000 plus drunks from all over the world. We just happened to bump into each other. We just happened to bump into each other. Mm -hmm. And we exchange information. He says, if you ever come to India, I'd love to host you at my coffee plantation. I'm like, sure, no problem. Now, India is nowhere on my radar, right? I mean, come on. It's not a vacation spot, you know, but uh, I say, okay. And Lalu calls with some regularity. And uh, I end up interviewing for a job as a result of work circumstances in Atlanta in 2013, not wanting to leave Dallas-Fort Worth, but was given an opportunity that would support my family. And ultimately, it became the decision. But when I interviewed for that job, it's in software. And the lady that was to become my boss said, hey, if we hire you, are you willing to go to India? And I said, sure. Mm -hmm. And it's really indicative to me of how God works. 
If I'm willing to go to God with my palms, my hands open, my palms up in a surrendered state and say, whatever you assign, I'm willing to do, he's going to set the cards, he'll set the dominoes for them to fall just as they need to. And you don't know what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. I believe God had his hand right in the middle of my path, introducing me to Lalu in 2010. And then I'm about to leave to go to Atlanta. It's the night before we hadn't talked to each other in a while. I can't get his, I can't find his phone number. And he was calling our home phone. I'm thinking, well, hell, if we sell the house, the girls were still working on selling the house when I came over and started work. I'm thinking, if we sell the house, we won't have the phone number. He's not going to be able to hold me, and I won't be able to connect with him when I got to India. And it's Friday night. I'm leaving Saturday morning. It's about 9 o'clock at night. The phone rings. Who was it? Lalu. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, how God works. In many ways, it's really interesting, and it sounds hokey. But it's just the reality of my experience. So we talked, and ultimately, I went to Bangalore, India, uh, in, in August of 2013. And I met he and his wife at, uh, for dinner at a hotel. There happened to be a three-day weekend for Ganesh Festival and the Hindu uh, 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 faith. And so I took a government bus overnight from Bangalore to a place called Chikmangu in the southwestern portion of the Indian, in the Indian Peninsula. And his foreman picked me up in a Jeep, and I drove up over the Horseshoe Mountain and around the range and drove up to his plantation. And I spent 72 hours on that man's plantation, and he hosted me at his coffee plantation. And uh, it was an amazing experience because it was quiet. And I built a really neat relationship with Lalu. And I got to go to his home group and give a lead on the first three steps. And that was an interesting experience being translated to Hindi. And then one of the most amazing experiences while we were sitting on top of the mountain and um, where you get cell phone signals so you can call his wife. And after we made that call, we're just sitting there kind of talking a little bit. And the back door of the Jeep opens up. It kind of startled me. And these two young guys jump in the back from the neighboring plantation. And they're both about 90 to 100 day, 120 days sober. And the four of us sit in the Jeep on the top of a mountain in southwestern India and have an AA meeting by cell mm. phone light. And that's how powerful God is. That's how God works, because he'll put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in your path. And that path, that process, you'll read it at the end of this discussion. You'll surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny is absolutely true. And that's really through engaging in Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole, not just going to meetings, not just working steps, not just having a sponsor. But buying the whole package and getting all the way in and having a three-legacy recovery program that includes the process of being of service in the general sense, getting on conference committees, going to conferences, and allowing your fellowship to expand because we belong to a worldwide fellowship. And if all I do is plug in and engage in a home group, I'm selling my life short because the relationships that we establish and have access to and maintain through that engaged participation at a broader level are amazing. It's how I met you was mm-hmm. through that process of engaging in Alcoholics Anonymous as a worldwide fellowship. I have co- I have a couple of conferences that are like bookends for me: the Lake Murray Men's Conference the first weekend in, in March in Edmond in, in uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma, and the Lakeside Conference in Brownwood, Texas in September. And there are many others that I go to by invite or just because they're around, right? I go to the Altoona Roundup here in Atlanta and the Atlanta Roundup and whatever. And there's others that I get invited to participate in or just go to. And it's amazing, you know. I've spent time in people's homes 
via Alcoholics Anonymous from California to North Carolina to New Hampshire to Florida, all over Texas, right? Minnesota, uh, Oregon, etc. just all over. Because that is what happens as you build connections. And isn't that really what we're missing in so many ways in that self, selfish, self-centered, isolated state of alcoholism? Everybody that I talk to, so I feel, I always felt alone. I could be in a room full of people and I feel alone. Not anymore. Mm. I'm not alone. And I never have to be. And nor does anyone that suffers from alcoholism and comes into Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I could talk for days and days and days about all the wonderful experiences I've had. And I know we're running short on time. But what I'll tell you, probably more than anything that I that I am grateful for, I'm grateful to the membership of Alcoholics Anonymous. From that olive branch that was extended to me at the pig roast food line, through the engagement and 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 welcome and fellowship that was handed to me at the Crest of Butte Mountain Conference, to the fifty thousand plus in uh, international conventions at the various places that I've been fortunate enough to attend. All of those people, through their shared experience, introduced me to a power greater than myself, which I choose to call God, that it gave me a life that has value, purpose, and meaning. From lost, lonely, and broken to value, purpose, and meaning. How do we get there? The 12 steps, well worked. The leadership of a sponsor, the engagement in a home group, and an embrace of our fellowship, I believe, will lead any sufferer into the hands of God. And it's my thanks to the membership for that relationship because without your experience, I wouldn't have it. You know, and I love I, I love the life I have today. You know, right here today, I'm okay. Made a job change right in the beginning of this COVID crisis, brought a little bit of nervousness, but it's going well. Um, I make a living and I can support my family. I have an active engaged home group and fellowship here in Atlanta, even though I didn't want to move here. I did what I was raised to do. I didn't repeat my mistake of moving to Dallas. And I've got a good group of friends and a good group of fellowship. I'm still engaged with my friends in Dallas. I'm still engaged with my friends in Chicago. And uh, I love the life I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, 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 and of those that you, of you that are listening to this, if you're new and you're struggling, a friend of mine, Gary Kay, says it all the time. Come all the way in, sit all the way down, and stay. And try to find a way to make God your first choice rather than your last resort. And if you'll do those things, remarkable things will come to pass for you and countless others. So, any other questions, John? No, I have no <laughs> other questions, but I so much like I'm ready to go do some more work now. I'm ready to go record some more, ready to go see my friends, ready to go. Uh, uh, just do everything that it takes to stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. You're uh, quite an inspiration, Mr. Doug. And how was that plantation coffee? It was fantastic. You know, it was one of my favorite things. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap a little bit around this. He used to send me home with about five pounds. That's all I could fit in my luggage. But he'd send me home fresh picked, fresh ground Indian coffee. And uh, it, was, it was fantastic. And then the International Convention here in Atlanta, he and his wife were supposed to come. And I got their hotel room and everything. And, and uh, about a month, uh, beginning of May, mid-May, before the conference, I got onto social media. I was friends with his wife. And I was looking to get the proper spelling of the last name and talked to Lalu to get the hotel transferred to his name and all of that. And I saw some condolences on the website. 
And I thought, oh my goodness. And I didn't know what happened. And I saw an English looking gentleman um, by the name of Matt M. And I reached out to him on Facebook instant messenger and said, hey, what happened? Lalu was killed in a car wreck, leaving Bangalore, going back to his uh, plantation. It just broke my heart. Just broke my heart because I wanted to be able to host him in my home. Like he did me and his, but uh, it wasn't to be. But interestingly, the memory lived on because Matt, the guy that I reached out, came to the International in San Antonio uh, in, in Atlanta, and I had a pre-party, you know, on Wednesday night before the convention started, and he was staying in the proximate area, and I asked him to come to my house because he never got to go to India, and I got to sit in my office and go through the full picture gallery of all the photos of me and, and Lalu on the plantation and around the plantation, so Matt got to visit the plantation even though Lalu had passed, and then. Um, you know, long story long, bring it full circle. Because of that connection, I actually went up to um, um, Nova Scotia in January of this year to to talk at a conference by Matt's invite. So those connections that we make, they're all intertwined. And I think that's how God intends it, is for all of us to be connected and engage with each other so that our lives can continue to expand and grow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, Doug, this has been fantastic. Um, I am going to go ahead and read from page 164 of the book to close this out. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Doug, and possibly even Mr. Lalu, God rest your soul. As you trudge the road of happy destiny, may God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Doug, namaste. Thank you so much for coming in with me today. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it, John. Thank you, Mr. Doug M., for sitting down with me for a couple of different episodes and recording your story. I know that the folks out there are going to benefit from your story. And as you said there toward the end of our interview, we are all intertwined. And we are. Um, I never know exactly who is listening to this podcast. Uh, I don't know how far-reaching it is going. I don't know exactly what sort of effect that it has I just know that I sit down and I do these things and that you, the ones who are listening to this, are on my mind. Uh, I pray for you. Uh, I envision you in the best way that I can. And it makes me think about the people that were so good to me coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of them aren't with us anymore. They have passed on. Some of them I've never seen again. All they were doing at the time, though, is they were doing the next right thing, and they had a very positive effect on my life. It also makes me think about the, the relatives and other adults that I had in my life when I was a kid, the ones who were good to me. And they weren't thinking about the long... I'm assuming they weren't thinking about the long-term effects they were going to have on me. But I still think about those folks and, and what they've meant to me in my life. And anyway, Doug, thank you again for 
coming in and recording your story. Uh, it sure was appreciated. And now on to a little bit of listener de la feedback. Jake A writes in and he says, Hi, John! Exclamation point. My sponsor introduced me to Sober Speak and I have found it very helpful. It's been difficult getting to meetings lately with the pandemic, so I've appreciated the convenience of a meeting at my fingertips through your podcast. Now, that sounds a little bit like a, a tagline, a meeting at your fingertips. Jake, I may have to steal that. We shall see here, my friend, if I can actually remember it through <laughs> next week. Or the week after that, nonetheless. Uh, by the grace of God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I just celebrated four years of sobriety on June 6th. Fantastic, Jake A. I live in the Denver area with my wife and my two young children. I have, I've had some ups and downs in recovery, but I am thankful for the journey. I do my best to apply the program of AA in my daily life. I've learned a lot through the program and can honestly say it has taught me to be a better husband, father, neighbor, and employee. I'm grateful to have podcasts such as yours to turn on when I'm having an off day or just need to connect with the program in some ways. I've enjoyed listening to Gary K., David G., and Bill C. I just recently started to listen in from episode number one, and I'm looking forward to working my way through all the episodes. Anyway, thanks for your service in providing this podcast. I enjoy the format and often hear something that I needed to hear each time I listen. Funny how that works, huh? <laughs> Keep up the great work and and perhaps we'll cross paths, paths someday as we trudge the road of happy destiny. In gratitude, Jake A. Thanks, Jake A., for writing in, and I am thankful to you. And once again, congratulations on your four years of sobriety. Diane writes in and Diane says, hi, John, I am new to sober speak. And by the way, I was just thinking uh, before I go on, Jake A is starting from episode one and going on to listen to all the episodes. My friend, you have some catching up to do and you'll get to hear some of my uh, crummy work. Well, you know, I, I guess it's all God's work. I don't know. You'll get to hear some of my work before I, I kind of sort of figured out what I was doing. Kind of sort, I should say. Uh, uh, it's been a very interesting um, journey. I'll put it that way. It's much like recovery. You know, you get in there and it's messy and it's sloppy and you don't know exactly what you're doing, but you just do things. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but you try and you learn, or I have learned who I am, what makes me tick by just doing and trying different things. Anyway, Diane writes in and she says, hi, John, I am new to Sober Speak. Thank you to all your guests and the hope that the podcast has given. I listened to the recovery show. I've listened to the recovery show for a couple of years. Spencer, she's talking about Spencer T on the recovery show, mentions Sober Speak, and I finally listened to some. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but heck, that's where my head is right now, and it's progressive, and I see it every day. Someone I share a house with, 
I don't see uh, I don't see drunk stumbling etc they're functioning but they never leave the house and barely leave their room someone else supplies the alcohol not me and does not believe there is a problem no we don't talk about it they drink together in the evenings weekends uh, the shaking we all are in Denial, big time, surviving, coping, existing. Any advice? Waiting for them to hit the bottom, question mark, confront, question mark. I've always been praying for this person for years. I am at a loss. I know I'm powerless. It is not my responsibility, nor do I have any control. If they will ever enter recovery, working hard for my own mental and physical care. I do not drink at all. Alcoholism runs deep and serious in my family and in this person's. I love the online meetings. Seems I go from one to the other. Love the podcast. Well enough rambling. Honesty, very uh, honestly, very discouraged. Thank you for the grain of hope that you provide on the podcast, Diane. Well, you know, Diane, I can't work this through uh, a, a, an email. Um, I did suggest to you, as you know, to come in maybe to the secret Facebook group uh, and to post some of your commentary in there. They're generally speaking that are uh, they're generally speaking willing. They're generally people that are willing in the secret Facebook group to uh, provide some feedback for you. Uh, I will say this: it didn't say in here, and I can't remember if you've written me some other time, but. Uh, the only thing I would say is if you're not in Al-Anon, get into Al-Anon. I think that would help tremendously. Kim writes in and Kim says, hello, John M. I wrote you in April and I am checking in again. I'm still listening to the podcast. I am listening to them in chronological order. What well, you and Mr. Jake. Hey, today I listened to Arlena A. Uh, you've asked on your podcast at times, where do you listen to the show? I listen while I am on my runs. Cool. So you are in, okay, so you're running and you're listening to these. I, I'm kind of picturing with little, uh, I guess those little AirPods or whatever you have nowadays. But anyway, she says a show will generally last me about six miles. And then I run my last mile or two in silence to think about what I just heard. It's a nice way to start my day. So you're having an eight mile run at least to start your day. I am very impressed. I could go about eight blocks, I think, but eight miles, I don't think so. Anyway, she says, when I first reached out to you in April, I had told you I was struggling after reaching my 10 years in October 2019. Well, I continue to struggle, but was making it, but now I have a new sadness to deal with. My mother-in-law of 35 years died a week ago today, and every day, all day, is the argument in my head of whether or not I should drink. I'm sad, and I'm grieving, and I don't like these feelings, and I don't know what to do with them, and I just want to check out, not feel. 
I don't expect you to write back. I know typing at a keyboard is not your thing, plus you don't have time. Besides, the podcast is your help to all of us out here. I have been an atheist for years, but... I have been trying to find God as I understand him. I decided I can't just say I don't understand him at all. That's the understanding I have. So I'm trying. Please think of me when you say your prayers. I need as much help as I can get right now. Thank you for the podcast, Kim M. in the PNW, Washington. She says, PNW, just in case you don't know, is the Pacific Northwest. Also, it's Oregon, not Oregon. (laughs) I have asked that question, I guess, a couple, three times at least on the podcast. How do you pronounce it? Okay, so I can't guarantee I'm going to remember this, but for right now, like at this moment, I know it's Oregon. Thank you very much, Ms. Kim M. Well, as you know, I wrote you back, and to make a long story short, I got her in touch with another a lady in the program that can uh, uh, help her through this time of need. Thanks for writing in, Kim. Sharice writes in and she says good afternoon john love sober speak exclamation point please add me to the life saving super secret facebook group i keep hearing all about it thank you sharice is that sharice from uh, silence of the lambs is that is that sharice or maybe that's a uh, Clarice, but nonetheless, thank you, Charisse, for writing in. As you know, we got you in to the life-saving super secret Facebook group. And I don't think I said this. I can't remember if I said it on the beginning, but in case you are not in it and you would like to be in it along with Charisse, you would need to email me with your email associated with your Facebook account. To John J O H N, there's no, uh, or there is an H in there, at soberspeak.com. Elizabeth writes in, and Elizabeth says, Hi, John. A friend of mine is a huge fan and listener. Well, let's. That's good. Let's. I, I like your friend, Miss Elizabeth. And uh, she says, I would like to make a donation in his name. I have heard you say something to the effect of sponsoring an episode or something like that. I wondered if there's the desired amount to get a birthday shout out or a sponsor uh, or an episode. Thank you for the work that you do in bringing the message. Your service is invaluable. Well, Miss Elizabeth, there's no preferred amount. Uh, any amount gets a mention on the episode. And if you want to tell me about your friend's birthday, I'm more than happy uh, to mention it on the podcast here. All right. Uh, But thank you for writing in. And you said my service is invaluable, but in my book, Miss Elizabeth, you are invaluable. All of you listening in are invaluable. We do this together. Christine writes in, Christine, Christine, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. She's probably heard that a million times. But anyway, hi, John, I'm a new listener and I love your straight talk. I guess I have straight talk. And guess, I am 45 days sober for the nth 
time. Some of my AA friends recommended your podcast to me. I would love to join the secret Facebook group. My email is such and such. Thank you so much, Christine. As you know, Christine, I got that out to you. Bronwyn writes in. Oh, well, hold on a second here. I got somebody entering the room. That is my daughter. What are you doing, sweetheart? Oh, getting wrapping. Oh, you know what she's getting wrapping paper for? I am actually recording this. What day is this, sweetie pie? Well, yeah, but what is the the significance of the day? (laughs) Yes, it is Father's Day. So she's in here getting wrapping paper. I'm assuming you're wrapping my gift. Is that correct? Indeed, she says. Okay, well, that's great. Anyway, Bronwyn, I hope you pronounce. I hope I pronounce it that way. B R O N W Y N. Is that right? My my daughter's giving me thumbs up. I don't think I've ever met a Bronwyn before, but I, I you know, it's kind of a yeah. It, you have? Yep. Well, how about that? Well, let me tell you what Bronwyn says, sweetheart. He says, "I hi, I am walking along a beach in far north Queensland." Australia. He is an Aussie. How about that? Isn't that cool? Oh, is it is that, is that a girl name? Oh, I'm so sorry. God, I just <laughs> I am so sorry, Bronwyn. I did not know. Oh, I am I am just uh, I'm embarrassed, believe it or not. I'm 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 getting red here. Anyway, um so she says, I'm walking along a beach in far north Queensland, Australia, listening to your podcast. I'm a recovering alcoholic and would like to join your super secret Facebook group, Bronwyn. Well, Bronwyn, as you know, I got that invite out to you. So come here, sweetie. I want you to say something real quick. All right. Will you come? Oh, come on. I want to say just one little line. Okay, so that is the end of our time together. And all I want you to say is, I love y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. Say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Oh, that was fantastic. (laughs) Bye-bye, everybody.